Today's guest is the Professor of Irish Studies and English and Irish Language and Literature at the University of Notre Dame, Declan Kybert. Declan, you're very welcome. Thanks indeed for coming into us. Nice to be with you, Shane. Um, interesting, eclectic choice of books. Just before we get to them, though, I mean, I'm a little intimidated talking to you about books because, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know more about books probably than any living person on, on the planet. I mean, when you pick up a book, I'm guessing, you, I mean, you're not going for Mills and Boons or... Uh, sort of trashy novels. Is it always something kind of heavyweight and meaty? Oh no, I I love all kinds of books. I'm one of those children that up to the age of 12 I grew up in a house without a television. So I developed an early addiction to reading of all kinds. Everything from the back of the cornflakes box to my father's privately sequestered novels. (laughs) (laughs) One of which was Ulysses actually. And, um, you know, I've, I've always been a reader ever since. It's, I can lose an entire day just having found a book nearby that I get into. OK, that's nice. So a reader all your life, and then obviously you took that into your professional life as well. Well, I'm lucky in that, you know, I can turn my thoughts about the books I read into classes and courses, mm. which, you know, otherwise the Kybert family wouldn't eat. So it's, it's very yeah. handy. But does it mean you have, a, I mean, do you have a low tolerance for bad writing as a result of that? I mean, are you always the critic when you're reading a book? No, not really. I mean, one of the things that strikes me more and more is that there's a a hair's breadth between very good and very bad writing. And sometimes, say in a book like Dracula, you'll get both on the same page. (laughs) And I think some of the greatest geniuses write well or badly without knowing it. In fact, most of the people whose names I've given you for today, I've read books by them that I thought weren't great either. Right. Okay. Um, I don't think everyone is always on their game. Yeah, OK. I suppose like in any walk of life, I suppose. <laughs> well, listen, let's get to some of your books. The first book, I have to admit, I wasn't aware of. I mean, I'm now, having looked into it a bit more, Tom's Midnight Garden by uh, Philippa Pierce. And I hadn't, I mean, I know it is actually a very famous book. I'm, I'm embarrassed not to know about it. But having read about it, I mean, just reading the summary of it, I actually found my kind of eyes starting to moisten. It strikes me as an incredibly sad book. It's a beautiful book, and I think it's probably the best children's book to be published in England in the last 80 or 90 years. And it I, goes I, back a long time, 1958. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it either when I was a kid reading all those books. It was my daughter Lucy who drew it to my attention when she was in her teens, I think. And it's not as well known a book as it should be. It's basically about a boy in the 1960s who has to go into quarantine because his brother has measles. And, you know, an incredible number of children's classics have a child in quarantine. Mm. I think it's probably because many of us as kids did a lot of reading by turning our beds into libraries when we had the measles and the mumps and everything else. But this boy is able, when the clock strikes 13 in his aunt and uncle's house, to go back to a Victorian garden where he meets an older girl, a girl who's in her late teens, he's about 10, And it's a beautiful relationship between the pair of them. But I think it's about, in a way, you know, how a boy of 10 in the 60s may know much the same things as a girl of 18 in the 1890s, but how there's a need to meet past and present across the generations. It's kind of a Back to the Future book, in a way. A little bit, yeah. uh, Like the famous movie. And I think part of the brilliance of children's literature in general is that it allows you to do that. You know, if you think of The Witch's Broomsticks and Harry Potter, they are ancient things in one way, but they're also autoplanes, which we haven't quite invented yet. <laughs> so there's a sense in which you get backwardness and forwardness, and you get it brilliantly in Philippa Pierce's book. Mm. Is it a bu- it's obviously a book about friendship. I mean, is it a book about loneliness as well, or am I reading too much no, into it? No, no, you're not. I mean, it, it happens in a garden, which is, of course, a classic locale of secret, enchanted garden of children's books. 
it may be even about the imaginary friend that we've all invented on a lonely day in a back garden. Um, because one the Victorian character, nobody else in the garden can see they, the kid they, who comes back, only, and they presume she's playing with her her imaginary friend. Yeah, and, and they think they're concocting it, and they alone see one another. And there's a beautiful scene, without giving anything away, and it is an amazing plot. Towards the end of the book, they both go on the same set of ice skates across a snowy landscape to a nearby cathedral town, Ely, which is near Cambridge, where Philippa Pierce grew up, and they climb the tower of the cathedral and it's almost like a metaphor for growth and each of them has helped the other to grow but the point is it's been done unconsciously that you can't force the flowers to come out you can't deliberately make growth happen it just happens anyway in the presence of someone who facilitates or makes it possible Mm. but it really is an amazing book about time bends about recapturing the past and ultimately I think is a book of hope in the sense that you know nowadays so many kids maybe don't do history so much in school, don't have any developed sense of what their parents' or grandparents' world was like. But if you take away <laughs> so if you true. take away the past from kids, you're also taking away the sense of the future because you're removing the momentum that takes you from one to the other. And I think I mean, you're saying it might be a sad book. I think it's an antidote to sadness because the sadness of so many young people nowadays is that they don't have a developed sense of even their own future, partly because they haven't been given a sense of the past. And I think it's one of the reasons why there's such a high incidence of youth suicide, for instance, at the moment. Well, that's very, why do you think that is? Why do children today have less a sense of their own past? Is it? I mean, I'm, I'm resorting to cliche here. Is it because their head is stuck inside a tablet or a, an iPod or something half the well, time? Well, there's so much to cope with in the immediate present and the present tenseism of the world. And I think that... It's getting harder and harder to develop a sense of chronology, for instance, of, you know, who came before whom. I would even find that with students that sometimes, you know, I'd assume they knew that Shakespeare came before William Blake, who came before Yeats. But even very bright people don't always know this. I think it's also spatial as well as to do with time that kids nowadays. I mean, when I grew up in Dublin, I walked the streets from the age of eight or nine and I knew the geography of the city. And, uh, you know, most kids now are driven from one experience to another and they don't learn the streets, you know, by the body. The I, way I heard a kid on St. Patrick's Day a few years ago, about 15 or 16, talking into his mobile phone beside Christchurch Cathedral. And he was saying, we're at the, there's, like, there's like a building with an arch over the road. Yes. And I felt like just grabbing and going, it's Christchurch Cathedral. No, it's McDonald's. <laughs> it's McDonald's. <laughs> but he, he didn't know. He just... uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think it is a terrible deprivation in a way because it's time and space, basically, that have been shrunken in the lives of our younger people. And it's our fault. It's not theirs. It's my generation's fault, you know. But it, I, I, is I that why at... 1916 grabbed them so much? Because, I mean, my own kids, they're young and... They just could not get enough in 1916. No, and I think it's also, it's a bit like in this novel, nothing is more remote than the rather recent past. You know, 1916 or a Victorian garden seems more remote than the stones of Newgrange. I think that's part of it. The other thing I think is that everything in Tiger Ireland was privatised and what that moment was about 1916 was people reclaiming the streets and restoring some sense of civic and public consciousness. And also it comes out of the austerity. 
people wanting something to celebrate. So this was brilliant on all fronts, the mm. 1916 commemoration. Just lastly on this book, because we'll move on after, because I'm dying to read it, I have to say. It is a terrific book, yeah. What, I mean, what age are we talking about for a kid? Are we talking 10, 12? 10 to 100. 10 to 100, yeah. <laughs> I think a 10-year-old would really enjoy it and get mystified by the time bends. Obviously, an older person will notice different things. And there is a very old person in the book. So it's kind of... Um, it's that idea sometimes that the very old and the very young can meet across the generations and the middle range of today's adults are sometimes a blockage. There's yeah. that in it too. Well, and it, you get that with grandparents a lot, that they're, well, exactly. they're able to, kids are able to relate to their grandparents sometimes more uh, or they can have a very special relationship. I'd and say. I think even maybe people watch films with their parents, but they may actually experience books sometimes with grandparents. That's a, a holy and a wholesome thought. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. Look, fascinating. I'm, look, I'm, I'm dying to read it. Oh, it is a great I, book. Yeah. I have a 10-year-old in our house who I, I just know would, would love that book. Philippa Pierce's Tom's Midnight Garden is Declan Kybert's first choice in our top five books. Uh, let's move on to your second choice. Bit of a one from left field. I mean, I suppose I, you know, I should have known that Declan Kybert, as well as reading books, also listens to music <laughs> as well. But uh, is Bob Dylan something of a hero of yours? Oh, I've been a Bob addict since I was an early teenager. I actually can boast and say I attended his concert in the Adelphi Cinema in May of 1966, which we will celebrate the 50th yeah. anniversary of next of month. Well. And I will never forget him... Uh, turning his back on the audience to sing Desolation Row with the alienation effect. And I looked around to see how they were taking it. And I was, what was I, about 14. Behind me was sitting um, George Best and his latest girlfriend. And I thought, God, I really am at... Wow, yeah, George Best in front of you, Bob and Dylan behind you. this man is you. the coolest man in the world up on the stage. <laughs> so I've been a Bob addict ever since. Wow, I can imagine. Now, the, the book we're talking about is Bob Dylan Chronicles. Yes. Volume 1, or is it Volume 1? It is, is, it, is it the only it, volume? It's the only volume, and therefore Volume 1. But yes, I too will be surprised if the projected Volume 2 or 3 ever appears. It's an amazing book. It's like the other one in that it defeats chronology. It zips back and forward in time. You would expect a kind of linear account. But as we know, most uh, rock memoirs become extremely tedious because all they are is lists of gigs. Yeah. This is a book much more about creativity and how it comes when you least expect it and what a blessing it is. And he goes into his incredibly fecund period in the mid-1960s when he produced all those great songs. But then how also equally unaccountably inspiration can desert you. And he talks about how he brought in people to help him, you know, compose a song or new instrumentalists or whatever. And it moves back and forward. He gets married and it's hardly mentioned. It's just mentioned suddenly he has a wife and then he has a wife who's some other wife. You know, all the things that were made central in the kind of linear biographies of Bob, he just treats as secondary. Now, it could be that he made a deal or something with Sarah, his wife, that he wouldn't emote in public about it. Or maybe it's just too much for him. But what's very interesting is the focus is always on the art rather than the life. I was going to ask you, with great people, truly great people, are their personal lives almost sort of secondary? Is, is that the price those around them pay for their greatness? And is this just another example of that? Well, the famous poet Eliot said that every artwork is a kind of extinction of the personality. You know, you express something and in the process you give something of yourself up into the artwork. Yeah. And I suspect that, you know, Dylan has constantly remade himself 
across the decades. And he has incredible energy for a man now in his 70s. But yes, I would think that he'd regard the life as something to be treated with discretion as well. I mean, he complains more than once in the book about how the media and the mob are the annoying intrusion. him. Yeah. yeah, He actually goes, there's a famous passage in it where he goes on a visit to Archibald MacLeish, who was one of the leading American poets of the time. And he's the young man with the old wise guru and he's asking for advice about how to cope with celebrity. And MacLeish turns out to be, in almost every sense, a disappointment to him. It's a bit like, you know, Dougal with Father Ted saying you should never meet your heroes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. And, of course, so many people probably had this experience with mm. Bob because, you know, I mean, any celebrity will never be equal to the stuff out there about them. But Dylan comes away from the meeting with MacLeish and the one thing he wanted to ask that he doesn't really get, he had been given by the head of CBS Records a copy of the first edition of Ulysses. And he says, I read this book and I could tell reading it this man was a lord of language. But what the hell he was saying, I could not figure out. <laughs> and I thought, this is the greatest joke in the book. This man is projecting like mad. This is what everyone says about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And he's putting it in Joyce. And more recently, he's actually made a comment somewhere, I can't remember where, saying that Joyce and Ulysses would teach you how to live, which is something I believe, actually, and tried to argue in one of my books. But, is this uh, yeah, Ulysses and, Ulysses and us? And us yeah. But I think a lot of people have used Dylan's writings in the same way as sort of ways of measuring the progress or regress of their own lives. Wow. Okay, I just use uh, World Cup uh, four-year periods to measure my <laughs> life. But that's a different thing. Uh, interesting you say about Bob Dylan kind of getting Joyce. I read an interview with you where you said the best critique you ever heard of Joyce was your own dad. My father, it was. Oh, I'll never forget that. On Bloomsday... 1982, the centenary of Joyce's birth, we were listening in Clontarf to Mr. Bloom, one of Mr. Bloom's interior monologues. And my father looked across at me rather wickedly and said, is this what you do in UCD every day, like a kind of irate taxpayer? And I said, well, actually, yes, we do quite a lot of this. And he listened a bit more and he said, do you not think it might be better not to have quite so rich an inner life? And I thought that is a brilliant line because what he's saying is, yes, all that interior monologue is rich, but it's a result of repression, too, mm. and the repression of that world, you know, under the church and colonialism, driving people back into the head. But, of course, I suppose Dylan would say that a lot of his lyrics are kind of stream of consciousness, too, mm. aren't they? Mm. So no wonder he was haunted by Joyce. Yeah. And if Joyce came back, I think he'd be very interested in Bob Dylan. I'm sure he would. <laughs> I'm sure he would. I was going to ask you an incredibly stupid question. I kind of caught myself about Dylan. But sure, I'll ask it anyway. Um, can he write? Of you know, in terms of I meant in, in the in the literature sense, but sure, of course he can write. If he wrote those songs, he'd be able to write. Um, the prose in Chronicles is beautiful. Yeah, and it's a sort of blend of the Huck Finn dialect American narrative mixed in with the Beats, sort of Kerouac, Ginsberg. There's slangy stuff in it, but of course, all language originates in slang, and Dylan knows this better than anyone. Yeah, I mean, he's an autobop writer of a certain kind. But he has been, of course, nominated by certain English departments for the Nobel Prize for Literature. And I tell you, if he gets it, I'll go out and drink a pint of cider. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> OK. OK, our guest is, uh, is Declan Kyvert. Uh, we're going through his top five books. Uh, we've already had uh, Philippa Pierce's Tom's Midnight Garden, 1958. If you want a book for your... I haven't read it, but just from listening to Declan, if you want a book for your children, 10 on, it just sounds like an extraordinary read. His second choice, Bob Dylan's Chronicles, 2004. We're just talking about it there. Your third choice is about cricket. Are you a... Are you a huge cricket fan? Oh, I have always been, yes. Yes, ever since my grandmother gave me a cricket bat at the age of four. 
And uh, I was an immense fan, of course, in my earlier years of West Indian cricket mm. because they came into flower in the 1960s. And CLR James, who's from Trinidad, basically is not just a great sports writer, he's a kind of philosopher too. He was actually a revolutionary Marxist and was put in jail, in fact, when he was in America for his activities. He wrote some brilliant studies of, say, Herman Melville, the Moby Dick guy, arguing that he too was a kind of socialist. But James basically takes cricket as a metaphor for the colonial relationship in the West Indies. You know, that the colonizer brings cricket and Shakespeare but then the natives learn how to make these things their own yeah. and become even better. And do it better, them. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he's brilliant because one of the things he said, you know, the, there's a kind of widespread casual theory that cricket exists mainly to generate statistics for nerds yeah, yeah. and was created by a leisure class, you know, who were trying to achieve a sense of eternity and had no better way of doing it than endless unresolved games of cricket. James argues against all that, that the game of cricket actually reflects the frustrated desire for complexity and artistry by the proletariat, by ordinary people, including, you know, the industrial working class of Lancashire and Yorkshire, who were so frustrated in the cotton mills or at the assembly lines, just like the West Indian workers were in the fields, that they wanted something that engaged their imaginations, their gift for complexity, and found it in sport. And I've always thought those arguments about sports are much truer than the sort of mainstream ones. I have a friend called Tim O'Grady, who's an American socialist, who wrote a book on golf, saying that it is also a people's sport, which has been mistakenly, you know, described as, as an elite... Mi Middle-class elite, yeah. Elite, posh, upper-bourgeois folly. But I think these sports all actually appeal to, if you like, the great masses, because they were produced by the mind of the masses. And this is James's basic argument. Yeah. The book, by the way, is called Beyond the Boundary. And, and of course, in those colonial countries, it certainly wasn't an elitist game. You go to India or Pakistan today, or the West Indies. I mean, it is the game of the people, isn't it? Yeah, no, I was in India a few years ago, and you could see a single ground with five games of cricket being simultaneously played on it in shared space, and people not getting confused, sticking with the game they were in. And it's almost like what we were saying earlier about, you know, younger kids losing the sense of space. These people really have it. And the same thing, you know, about time. James describes in that book how working men in Trinidad would play a game of cricket on a Saturday afternoon, which was the only time they were free. Couldn't play on the Sabbath because it was sacred. But they would have to wait till the following Saturday to continue the game. And they would. And games would be spread out over weeks sometimes in an almost timeless way. Yeah. So again, it's this thing of trying to defeat chronology almost. Yeah, and it is a game that does require sort of patience, I suppose, if you're, particularly if you're watching. I have to say, I love sport. I never got cricket and, and still haven't to this day. I mean, I, I love some of the history about it. I, I was glued to, I remember 30 years ago, the Bodyline series. I was absolutely captured by it. But the game itself, I've, I've never really got. Well, well, the main difference between cricket and other sports is that, you know, you don't have 11 men ranged against 11 men at any moment on the pitch. In a sense, your opponent, the guy batting, if you're bowling and fielding, is a minor technicality, your opponent, yeah. compared with things like the weather the wind, changing clouds that make the ball do different things. So I've always thought of cricket as, in a way, the human battle with fate, 
with destiny. I mean, this sounds a bit portentous. Yeah. But, but I think <laughs> the elements I, even? I think that, yes, exactly. And I mean, this is true of lots of sports where really great sportsmen take account of changes in the weather in the middle of a game, you know? Yeah. Or even in a career, the way Brian O'Driscoll altered his game to suit his changing age and conditions. I mean, that's what artists do. They remake themselves yeah. in different times, in different ways. But I think the appeal of cricket is, is, well, I was joking about it having a sense of eternity, but I think it does. It, it is to do with fate. And your immediate opponent is a minor technicality compared with the weather and everything else. And just in terms of the book itself, I mean, if you were describing it in short, is it a social commentary? Is it a critique of the game of cricket or, or, or how it's, would you describe it? It's a mixture of memoir where he describes his own experiences as a first class cricketer, but he was never the greatest of the great. It's also a social history because it's about how difficult it was for a black man to become the captain of the West Indian team. And when Frank Worrell got that honour, they were the team of Wes Hall and Griffith that charmed the whole of England in 1963. They were, you know, Calypso cricket. And what a huge breakthrough this represented for the community over there, but also the joy of, of beating the English at their national game on their own ground. Mm. It sounds extraordinary that it took to that point for a, a black man to be the captain of the West Indian team. It just seems Yeah, and James shows how there were all these interior gradations of colour, even within the black community. You know, if you were paler, you were more posh. You know, terrible stuff, really. Yeah, yeah. And he's a wonderful judge of cricketers. He sees it as an art. He isn't always right. I remember reading an essay he wrote in The Guardian when Ian Botham was just emerging. And the headline on the piece was, A Youth of Mediocre Talent. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> even the great writers sometimes get things wrong. I know enough about cricket to know he got that one wrong. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay, excellent choice there. CLR James, uh, Beyond a Boundary. Let's go on to your second last choice. You've gone for, I suppose, one of the great English novels. The great 19th century English novel, Middlemarch, by George, George Eliot, who was really Mary Ann Evans. She used a male pen name. I love it. It's subtitled A Study of Provincial Life. And it's basically about how England in the mid-19th century is lapsing into provincialism. Everyone thinks they're at the centre of things, but they're not. She uses this great image of a web, a spider's web, with lots of nodal points. And the problem with provincials is they're often looking over their shoulder at what happens in a distant capital and don't fully believe in themselves. Or they are so immersed in the immediacy of their own lives, they've no sense that there's other ways of living. And either way is to be a provincial. So it's an amazing book and it has lots of different families. It is a bit like what we would call nowadays a HBO serial because it appeared in eight different installments originally, like with an appropriate climax at the end of each. Previously on Middlemarch. Yes, and increasingly interlocking plots, you know, involving different people. But it is really, I think, I mean, Virginia Woolf said it was the one great novel in England in the 19th century fit for adults to read, which is, of course, a bit of an exaggeration. What she meant was the other great ones whose names we know, Pride and Prejudice, Great Expectations, Jane Eyre, have kind of fairy tale. I was going to say plots. something more frivolous about them. Well, well, they are modernised versions of a fairy tale. Reader, I married them. You know, yeah, yeah. Or you know, Pip winning through in Great Expectations. But this is a book about, in a way, the mellow disillusion of the adult years, if you like. And it's full of people who are actually frustrated by the provincialism. There's a young doctor, Lydgate, who comes from his training in Paris, and he's up with the latest advances in continental medicine but he's not really fully able to practice them in a provincial town. And, you know, I often link it to Patrick Kavanagh, who distinguished the provincial, if you remember, and the parochial. 
And he said the great thing about the parochial was it was self-sufficient. Yeah. The provincial was always heedlessly looking over the shoulder, you know, the kind of guy who would sing Kevin Barry in a Nashville accent because <laughs> you're supposed to sing like an American, you know, yeah, yeah. that kind of heedlessness. And that's what she's on about, basically. Is there kind of a link between the... Yeah, Middlemarch and the Philippa Pierce book and, and even what you were saying about Dylan and I, I, I'm struggling to, to actually articulate what that is but that sense of I don't know time um, the elements well, I, I don't, I, I'm not even sure what I'm getting at here but it just struck me as you were talking that <laughs> it was sort of similar themes in the books yeah that's interesting I hadn't knowingly done it with any intent of coherence it's just me and what I like Yeah, but she's writing that book in the 1870s about the 1830s and a period of reform. So it is a kind of flashback thing as well of about 40 years and sort of excavating the present in the past, which is what the Philip Pierce and I think a lot of Bob Dylan lyrics do too. Maybe that's what writers... I've often thought that, that there's a bit of a time lag. You know, when you think of uh, Irish writers like McGahern and Friel, they were often writing in their plays or books about 30 or 40 years earlier. It's as if when you're up too close, you can't photograph the moving object. Mm. You need the rearview mirror. Yeah, okay. And I think she's doing that the, on the 1830s. Like, you know, Mao's, kind of, what was it, Mao's line about the French Revolution, which she probably never said about being too early to oh, tell. Too I mean, you almost lie. need yeah. that, that. You do. But what you're finding, in fact, are the sources of the present moment. It's not really an escape back. It's just a way of realising that the moment you're in now has all these elements feeding into it. What is it about these books, though? Uh, What is it about literature that, I mean, this book was written 19th century, as you say. You know, if you saw a film from 60 or 70 years ago, inevitably the writing in it would be clunky and and dated. You don't get that with a great book to the same extent. Well, some people would say that George Eliot is a bit preachy. Yeats actually didn't like her, and even in his own time he found her a bit dated. He said uh, she was moral, and Yeats said the moral and the religious impulse kill each other in the end. He said if she had more religion, she would have less morals. She was basically a secular liberal Mm. of the 19th century, early kind. Some people would find her a little bit know-all. But I like it because she's trying to give a description of a total society. And to do that, you have to be a bit of a know-all. So I don't mind it. But I know from talking to students about that book over the years, most of them love it, but some of them do find her a little too knowing, I suppose, you know, that omniscient narrator idea that goes with certain kinds of Victorian novel. And like now, even in terms of TV documentaries, people don't like having Lord Clark of Civilization telling you everything on screen. They kind of have a commentary, but it's it's almost lost and embedded. And I think it's the same in modern novels. The novelist doesn't like to be too obvious about yeah. knowing all that they know. Okay, okay, interesting. Our guest is Declan Kyber. We're going through his top five books. We've had uh, Philippa Pierce, Tom's Midnight Garden, Bob Dylan Chronicles, uh, C.L.R. James Beyond a Boundary, George Eliot, Middlemarch there. Your final choice, you've gone for, uh, well, probably our greatest ever poet, W.B. Yeats. Yes, I do think he's the greatest user of the English language since Shakespeare. Um, I do. And what is remarkable is he's the only truly great poet in the English language who was a monoglot. English was the only language he knew. He tried to learn Irish 13 times and he failed. Many people would sympathise. Yeah, a lot of people, I suspect. Ditto with his attempts at French. Some people would say he never even fully mastered English. You know, when he applied for the chair of English in Trinity College, Dublin, he misspelt the word professor. He spelt it with two F's. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I love Yeats. I think that in some way he realises the genius of the English language as no one else has done. And uh, he doesn't just describe emotions in his poems. I think he actually invents them in the course of the poem. And, you know, I've always felt that about some of Dylan's songs as well. I think there's an analogy between the two of them. People complained about Yeats that he kept changing his poems from book to book, even changing the wording. It's like when Bob gets up and blown in the wind is unrecognisable because he's fooled around so much with it. Mm. And Yeats said, those friends, they do not know what is at stake. It is myself that I remake. So he was like remaking himself through each of his succeeding decades. And that's the other greatness of Yeats, that he never repeated himself. He kept doing new things literally until he was dead. There was also, there's also an accessibility about Yeats that maybe you couldn't say about all poetry, or would you agree? No, I think there's a rawness in his emotions and an honesty, a candor in the way he not only creates them but confesses them. And he is actually, he said in one poem, there's more enterprise in walking naked. He is a very naked kind of person in the poems, and I think that is why people are moved. They feel they're getting it real an actual emotion. Is that, again, to go back to one of the points you were making earlier, is that a symptom of the repression of the times, that the only way he could express these things was through his poetry? It's possible. He was a fairly buttoned-up young man. You probably saw on the recent Geldof documentary about him that I think he had his first serious kiss with a member of the opposite gender when he was all of 29 years old, which it's, is a fairly late start. Yeah, yeah. But not, probably not that unusual at the time. Well, it's true. I remember reading in his memoir that his parents pointed out to him when he was a teenager English tourists kissing flagrantly in the railway station in Sligo and said, isn't this so vulgar? <laughs> so maybe that gave him a 10-year time lag on it. My mother used to always laugh about Yeats's long uh, courtship of Maud Gone and referred to those years as his decades of foreplay. <laughs> he did was, she, did he, she just get fed up waiting he, around, basically? I know. I think, uh, think Maud was about other business. I think she admired him and, and liked him. And in fact, I do think that the Easter 1916 poem we've all been quoting in recent weeks, yeah. which is a great political poem about the event, it's also a love poem to her because she had said to him, tragic dignity has returned to Ireland after the rising, and he put it in the refrain, a terrible beauty is born, the terror, the pity and terror that goes with tragedy. And of course, very conveniently, McBride has just been executed, his rival for her hand. So Willie brings his poem to press his suit, you know, one last hopeful vibration, <laughs> and, and it doesn't work. Right. She, she more or less throws the poem back in his face and says it's not equal to this great moment in our history. Sometimes poetry, even poetry, can't match the actual deeds. Well, I think it's a great poem, and I think it does match them. What's fascinating is she takes his image of the stone, hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. And he thinks the stone is hard, cold, impervious. He's appealing to Maud to be like the hens calling to the moorcocks or the moorcocks answering to have a sexual life. And she says, no, no, the rebels were like stones, but that's good. By being unchanging, the stone creates all the ripples around it in the stream. By not changing, they changed everything. So he, she actually not only throws his poem back in his face, she sort of reinterprets its central image for him. And that's a very interesting lesson because it shows you that even a great writer never knows fully what they've just said. 
and that one of the functions of reading <laughs> is to scare the socks off the writer who has produced the text with an audacious new interpretation of it that they might not even have knowingly contributed to, but is there anyway. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so there's a kind of blindness that goes with Maud's insight into the central image of the poem, but she certainly gets the overall poem wrong. It is a masterpiece. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a reminder that every great public event is also a private experience, you know? Everyone remembers where they were when they heard the terrible news that Oliver Snow had made a movie called JFK. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Terrible Beauty, that was the name of the TV programme you, you did yourself. I mean, there was quite a debate about that time. I think you, you covered it in the programme, whether or not, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did culture drive 1916 or was the culture a reflection of what was happening in the country at the time? I'm guessing you think it was more that culture set those, helped set those conditions. I think culture was absolutely central. And the 30 years before the Rising were filled with cultural ferment. You get, along with that, the beginnings of a political movement for, if you like, self-government and then eventually a military movement. But in my opinion, the cultural movement is the most important of all, especially now. We don't have much political sovereignty left. You talk about it every week on your show. We've virtually no economic sovereignty. No, no one zero, has it now. Zero economic because, sovereignty, yeah. But we have sovereignty in the domain of culture. So all the experiments in art, in painting, in the fine arts in those years are just as important now, maybe more than they were then. And, you know, I feel we've a lot to learn from those people. As my old teacher, Elman, used to say, we're still learning how to be their contemporaries. I was going to ask you about a quote from, from your work. Culture is the site of most of our struggles. I think actually you said this in an interview, and this is pretty much the point you're making. With the globalisation of economics and maybe even the loss of sovereignty, in many cases, culture is more and more the way through which people represent themselves. It's a fascinating concept. So is it identity really more than nationality? Is that It's maybe a post-national identity. I mean, you know, in the time of nationalism, the English were looking for an answer to the Irish question. What I argued in the programme and in a lot of my writings is that we Irish are still looking for something more subtle, a meaning to the question. But that makes us very representative of all humanity in the postmodern age, mm. trying to see what survives of identity with all the social networks and so on. We'll have to master them to project our identity the way people like Yeats and Gregory and Hyde mastered print culture of 100 years ago and did exactly the same. Okay, Declan Carver, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Declan's books again, Philippa Pierce's Tom's Midnight Garden, Bob Dylan Chronicles, C.L.R. James's Beyond a Boundary, George Eliot's Middlemarch and W.B. Yeats' Collected Poems. Declan Carver, thanks so much for coming in to us. Thank you very much too, Shane. And thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast you might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard also you can follow us on twitter we're at chains top five books